0: Welcome to The Latest on the Law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Alexis Terrio. I'm an attorney at Kavanaugh, and I'm a member of the Business and Commercial Litigation Section Steering Committee, who's presenting this program. And we are very excited to have Shauna Tuhig, a senior attorney at Hunt and Andrews Kirth, and Ken Thayer, a partner at Con both specialize in business litigation and in particular chapter 93A claims. And I will kick it off to them to talk to us about five things that we need to know about recent decisions uh, in chapter 93 A business litigation. Great. Thanks, Alexis.
0: Um, So I'll start with a high level primer. Um, As you probably already know, chapter 93A is the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Statute. Uh, Section two is the heart of the statute and it makes it unlawful to engage in unfair methods of competition or unfair or deceptive acts or practices in the conduct of any trade or commerce. So section nine creates a private cause of action for consumers uh, for violations of section two, while section 11 creates a private cause of action for businesses and those business to business claims are the focus of our discussion today. Both sections two and nine, provide for double or treble damages for willful or knowing violations of the statute, and they both permit the recovery of attorney's fees for a successful claimant. So under Section 9, a consumer plaintiff must first serve a demand letter on the defendant at least 30 days prior to filing suit. If the defendant makes a written tender of settlement, which is rejected by the plaintiff, and the court later determines that the settlement offer was reasonable, the plaintiff's recovery may be limited to the amount of that offer. Note that the demand letter is actually a jurisdictional prerequisite to suit, which must be alleged and proven. Otherwise, uh, traditional rules with respect to personal jurisdiction and choice of law apply under section nine. Meanwhile, uh, section 11 does not require a business plaintiff to serve a demand letter prior to filing suit. However, a defendant may still tender a written settlement offer along with its answer, um, which if rejected by the plaintiff and again later deemed reasonable by the court may serve to limit the plaintiff's recovery. Finally, under section 11, in addition to the traditional personal jurisdiction rules, There is also a requirement that the unfair competition or unfair or deceptive acts or practices must have occurred primarily and
2: substantially in Massachusetts in order for chapter 93A, section 11 to apply. Right. And before we get into the specifics of section 11, we do
0: have one practice note regarding chapter 93A generally that is worth highlighting. So for chapter 93A claims in state court, the Massachusetts SJC has ruled that there is no right to a jury trial. Conversely, Massachusetts federal courts recognize the right to a jury trial on certain types of 93A claims under the Seventh Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which uh, guarantees a, jury, a trial by jury in suits at common law, where the value in controversy exceeds $20. So specifically in 2017, in the full-spectrum decision that's cited on your screen, the First Circuit ruled that the Seventh Amendment provides the right to a jury trial for Chapter 93A claims uh, that allege deception, because those claims are analogous to claims recognized at common law. However, it left open the question of whether the Seventh Amendment applies to other types of 93A claims, such as those premised on unfairness. Uh, Last year, in the Wallstrom decision, again, cited on your screen, the district court held that the claims uh, that claims for unfair insurance settlement practices do give rise to a right to a jury trial um, pursuant to the analytical framework that was set forth by the first circuit in full spectrum.
3: Okay, turn it over to Ken. Um, hi everyone. So, as as Shauna said at the outset, um, the, this the bulk of this presentation is going to be about business to business claims, uh, which are governed by Section 11. Um, now, specifically, Section 11 is not limited to um, actions between two corporations or, or two entities. It can be an individual um, and an individual, or even two individuals, um, provided that. Uh, the the dispute arises in the in the business context, and because um, that's fairly ambiguous, there's there's been some case law on this, um, and and while we will get into um, a deeper discussion of what trade or commerce means, uh, which is the the delineation between a consumer claim under Section nine and a a Section eleven claim, um, essentially the the threshold. That the courts have decided applies here is for Section 11, uh, it's whether the plaintiff was motivated by business considerations uh, in its engagement with the defendant. Um, Now, that's going to be very clear in business to business uh, contract cases, um, but perhaps less so when the plaintiff is an individual. And so, you know, just as a practice pointer, when considering if you're representing an individual or defending a claim brought by an individual, um, the key question for determining whether section nine or section 11 applies is going to be whether that individual was motivated by business considerations. Um, Now, under section 11, um, we're gonna get into some of the nuances um, that will affect whether a claim can be successful or even be um, brought at all, Um, but, at the the 10 000 foot level uh we wanted to start with kind of the three essential elements as articulated by the first circuit um in in this anush v uber decision uh, which i would say is uh, generally speaking a handy guide um, because it provides a really comprehensive summation of uh, both the state and federal case law that's arisen under 93a section 11. Um, so i'd say that's a good resource um if you're uh, briefing 93A Section 11 issues, um, but in at, at, as I said, at the 10,000-foot level, Section 11 claims are those in which uh, the defendant uh, has engaged in unfair uh, competition or uh, an unfair and deceptive act. Uh, it's a, It's importantly, the second element is that there's been a loss of money or property um, and we're gonna talk uh, a lot more about what constitutes a loss of money or property and what must be alleged and proven for, um, for that aspect of the claim to be sustained. And number three, um, of course, that the, the defendant's conduct actually caused that loss. Um, and so, uh, Sean, if you go to the next slide, please. So the things we're going to talk about today arose from recently decided federal and state cases under 93 a And in analyzing those cases, we came up with a sort of five high level things um, to know. None of these are new law necessarily, but the the recent case law has clarified these and reinforced principles um, that that have long been uh, bandied about in, in the federal and state cases. And before we dive into them, we'll just say briefly, those are number one. The first thing we're going to talk about is that the bar for unfair and deceptive conduct in Section 11 cases is high. There's a lot of case law that says it has, uh, that it has been high, and it remains high, as you'll see under the newly decided case law. Um, The second is that that Section 11 requirement for the parties to be engaged in trade or commerce is a narrowly defined requirement. Uh, Number three, we, we talked about how Uh, there must be um, a a loss to be sustained for the 93A claim to be um, uh, credited, uh, at least under Section 11. Um, That loss, which has been described as adverse effect, um, does not require um, either a certain or even a quantifiable monetary loss. And we'll talk about what the alternative way of establishing um, an adverse effect can be under 93A. Fourth, um, the primarily and substantially in Massachusetts requirements. This is one that has given a lot of claimants trouble over the years, and we'll talk a little bit about um, the historical case law there, as well as the most recent case law touching on that point. Um, And lastly, um, can parties get out of chapter 93a if they they agree to do so? Um, Well, the answer is yes, but as we'll see, um, they have to be very explicit in their uh, declaring their intention to do so. And we'll talk about um, how they can achieve that and the circumstances in which they aren't able to achieve that.
0: All right, and Ken, before you jump into the next slide, uh, we have a question about whether it's possible to share today's PowerPoint presentation. Um, And I think that can be uploaded with the uh, video, but we'll confirm after we finish our presentation.
3: A a great question, but one that uh, is above Mm -hmm. Shauna and I's pay grade. That's right. (laughs) Uh, So the the first of the our five points for today um, is, uh, as it says, that the bar for unfair and deceptive conduct in Section 11 cases remains high. Um, We we probably have all heard at one point or another. Um, that a Section 11 claim requires, quote, a level of rascality that would raise the eyebrow of someone inured to the rough and tumble world of commerce. Uh, That famous quote is from the 1979 mass appeals court decision in Levings v. Forbes and Wallace. And as many of you may also know, the Supreme Judicial Court has called it uninstructive back in uh, the, the mid to late 90s. Nonetheless, it still is cited from time to time um, and the the larger point remains, and that is Section 11 claims are held to a higher standard uh, for what constitutes unfair and deceptive conduct than Section 9 claims. Um, more recent case law from the appeals court has said that plaintiffs under Section 11 have to show, quote, seriously deceptive and harmful misconduct, um, a, a, as opposed to an and. Unarticulated, but presumably lower standard of deceptive and harmful misconduct uh, for consumers under Section Nine. Um, likewise, something else that that almost anyone who's uh, litigated a, a, a Chapter Ninety Three A claim, particularly a business to business claim, is going to know is that a breach of contract standing alone is not a Ninety Three A violation. Uh, to to establish a 93A violation in a contractual breach situation, there needs to be a higher showing. Um, Specifically, as the appeals court stated in the diamond Crystal Bands case from 2004, um, a a violation that was done intentionally and for the purpose of securing some unwarranted benefit, um, that, that establishing that would take your claim from a normal breach of contract into the realm of unfair and deceptive under ninety three a. You
2: can go to the next slide.
3: Okay, so we know we know that the claim has to be more than a breach of contract. Well, what if what if the defendant not only breaches the contract but they engage in a interpretation of their contract? which the court finds to be extremely weak or unreasonable or baseless. Well, that was what uh, the court was faced with in um, an a appeals court case that was decided this spring called Bickford's Family Restaurants versus Waltham Ventures. Um, that case involved um, a dispute between a restaurant, Bickford's, and a property owner. Um, in which the, the the property owner, Waltham Ventures, had bought certain property rights from Bickford's, and as part of the contract, there was a deferred payment uh, provision. Um, the, ultimately, Waltham did not pay uh, the the amount set forth in that deferred payment provision, and Bickford said that that payment was owed, and they filed lawsuit. Uh, Waltham took the position that whatever circumstances triggered. Uh, the deferred payment were not met. Um, it had something to do with with a mortgage and whether the mortgage was a new mortgage was issued or refinanced. It, it, it's immaterial for purposes of this discussion. Suffice it to say that when the trial court adjudicated that issue, they found that there was no basis for Waltham Ventures to have refused to make the deferred payment. Um, it, that, that it was clear under the contract and under the, the facts that. That were uh presented at trial, um, that the the basis for the deferred payment had been met. And that um that essentially uh Waltham's position was was an unreasonable one, and even as the court found, a baseless one. Nonetheless, the court did not find a 93A violation in addition to the breach of contract. So uh Bickford's appealed they said look court we have unreasonable conduct plus a breach of contract that meets the the diamonds uh test from from 2004 um are we're, we're not just talking about a, a breach of contract uh give us our 93a claim uh but the the appeals court again said no they said that uh even a breach of contract that is in which the the party's interpretation is unreasonable is extremely weak uh is not. Basis for a 93A claim, provided that the defendant's position is the result of, quote, an honest disagreement. The court even says: no matter how incompetent the defendant may have been in interpreting their contractual obligation, as long as it was honest and the result of a genuine misunderstanding about what the contract said or their obligations thereunder, then there's no 93A violation even if their understanding is determined to be unreasonable. Uh, Going forward, what what can we take away from this? Um, Well, if you want to prove a 93 a violation on top of a breach of contract, it's not enough to say that the defendant uh, took an unreasonable position. We have to say further that that unreasonable position was deliberately taken or knowingly taken um, and done so for the purpose of uh, securing some unwarranted advantage.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Ken, because I think the common knee-jerk reaction is to add along a 93A claim um, with every breach of contract claim as a matter of course, and clearly that's not always the best practice.
3: Probably won't stop plaintiffs from doing it, um, as as I'm sure all of us understand from the, the cases we've litigated.
0: That's right. Okay. Um, So, as Ken and I mentioned at the outset, um, Chapter 93A prohibits unfair methods of competition or unfair or deceptive acts or practices, specifically in the context of trade or commerce. And as Ken touched on, you know, what constitutes trade or commerce is very narrowly defined, and in particular, excludes disputes arising out of the employment relationship between an employer and an employee. Um, Note, however, that where an employer or employee acts outside of the traditional employment relationship, Chapter 93A may still apply. So, For example, in the um, Peggy Lawton Kitchens case cited on your screen, the Massachusetts appeals court ruled that chapter 93A did apply where a former employee stole his former employer's trade secret cookie recipe and used that recipe to start up a rival cookie company. And the first circuit reason that 93A applied because the employment relationship had ended and the two parties were acting as competing businesses. Uh, And I'll note that the Peggy Lawton Kitchens decision is worth a read if only for the numerous cookie puns and jokes included by the appeals court. Um, Similarly, chapter 93A does apply to disputes arising from the sale of a commercial business, even if the transaction itself was not made in the ordinary course of that business. So now uh, consider a dispute between an independent insurance agent and an insurance company where the agent is not actually employed by the insurer, but his sales services are exclusively devoted to that insurer. Does Chapter 93A apply to a dispute between the parties? So in other words, are they acting in the employment context or in the context of trade or commerce? And that was the question before the court in the Allstate case uh, decided earlier this year, and it's cited on your screen. And the First Circuit ruled that the agent's relationship with the insurer was analogous to an employer employee relationship rather than, say, an independent contractor or franchise or franchisee relationship, which would have been commercial in nature. And therefore, the insurer and the agents were not engaged in trade or commerce
2: within the meaning of Chapter 93A, and therefore, Section 11 did not apply. Shauna, what what do we
3: think about um, if there's an independent contractor working for a company, um, but they have like a non-compete agreement, um, would that, do we think that would fall within the rule articulated here in the the Allstate case or because they're an independent contractor, is that still 93A land?
0: You know, I'm not sure. I haven't seen a decision um, on that precise issue, but I do think um, that the non-compete agreement could tip it in the realm of the employer-employee relationship. seems more like a dispute that sort of agency relationship versus uh competing business ventures that are acting in a
3: commercial context yeah sure and, I, I was I was just gonna say that i I think that that's this decision um it as with many ninety three a decisions uh it it answers one question and opens up uh, a, a world of future ones um based on the the myriad factual differences that that come up in the the business context and the and in the employment or quasi-employment context.
0: Yeah, then that's a good point. I think a common thread among all of these cases is that all these questions that we're mulling over here are very fact specific. Um, So you'll see a lot of distinguishing based upon the
2: particular facts of the case before the court.
3: Uh, so m- moving forward to the third of our uh, five things to know, um, mentioned earlier that loss is of course a key element of a ninety-three A section eleven claim. That that's actually a difference from section nine, where um, you you may be familiar that nominal damages um, combined with an unfair and deceptive uh, practice by on the part of a business vis-a-vis a uh, consumer. Um, Will sustain uh, a Section Nine claim and will perhaps most importantly uh, give rise to an award of attorneys' fees. There's a lot of Section Eleven case law um, where there was a either no damages or or questionable damages, where similarly the the cart driving the horse was attorneys' fees, and the the courts have had cause to fashion standards around when those attorney's fees can be obtained in a case where damages have not monetary damages uh have not been awarded. Um the 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 key to understanding this line of case law uh begins with the jet line decision uh, by the SJC in 1989, uh where they made clear that um While a mere unfair and deceptive practice is not sufficient in the absence of some loss, um, that loss is defined as, or that loss is sufficient where there is, quote, some adverse effect on the plaintiff. Uh, Subsequent case law, um, including the uh, appeals court's decision in Keeley versus Teradyne that you see on your screen, um, has made clear that adverse effect goes beyond monetary damages um, and includes situations where the court awards permanent injunctive relief. Um, Now, permanent uh, injunctive relief is an important distinction here because a preliminary injunction, which enters sometimes uh, in in litigations, but um, ultimately is not uh, deemed permanent when the case is resolved, uh, will not support a ninety three a 93A claim and an award of attorneys fees. So, in in other words, just because you or your opponent obtains a preliminary injunction at some point in a section eleven case, uh, does not necessarily mean that attorneys fees are changing hands. It's going to depend on what the ultimate resolution there is and whether either monetary damages or a permanent injunction is awarded. Um, and there's a recent, a more recent case that that has clarified that. Um, which we can talk about uh, in a second if
2: you go to the next slide.
3: So uh, the District of Massachusetts this past May decided a case um, called Benchmark Technologies Inc. versus 2. That case, uh, Benchmark Technologies is a manufacturer of uh, uh, semiconductors or or a, a portion of semiconductors and two was its uh, former employee uh, who left the company and uh, set out to start a competing business, um, which Benchmark said he was doing uh, using their stolen trade secrets. Um, Litigation ensued, and ultimately, the court ruled in Benchmark's favor on the issue of liability. They found that two had, in fact, taken Benchmark's trade secrets Um, and and was endeavoring to start a competing business in the semiconductor industry with those trade secrets. Uh, But the court also notably found that uh, he hadn't done so yet and that as a result, Benchmark had not suffered any monetary damages whatsoever. So two uh, of course says, well, that means at the very least I don't have 93A liability uh, and I don't have to pay Benchmark's attorney's fees. The court said, not so fast. Uh, In fact, the the potential for harm, the the risk of future harm that warranted an issuance of a permanent injunction preventing two from using those stolen trade secrets, did satisfy the adverse effect requirement. Um, I may have said that in a somewhat cumbersome way, so I'll, I'll try again, which is, The risk of future harm does constitute an adverse effect, which permits the recovery of attorney's fees under 93A Section 11. If you're a plaintiff and you can show that the defendant's unfair and deceptive conduct puts you at risk of suffering future monetary harm, such that the court, and you persuade the court of that, and the court issues a permanent injunction to prevent that future harm from from being realized, you have demonstrated an adverse effect and you can recover attorney's fees under 93A section 11.
2: And I wonder if apart from a future monetary
0: harm, um, sort of an unquantifiable harm, like harm to reputation or business goodwill would also qualify as an adverse effect.
3: And I think that there's a really strong argument that it would. And the reason for that is that the court, uh, in in benchmark and in other decisions, has talked about unquantifiability, and the fact that loss or harm is unquantifiable does not mean that it's uh, that it can't um, supply the the elemental prerequisite for a 93A violation. Um, So a a harm to goodwill or harm to reputation, uh, even if the court can't or doesn't put a number on it. Um, as long as they find that that harm exists, uh, they, I think the the stronger argument is that a ninety three a violation would be sustained. Um, where it might get tricky, and as a defendant, where you might want to hang your hat is to say that if they can't quantify that harm to reputation, um, then it's not it, it it's not really. It's not real um, and, and make it a factual question about whether that harm actually exists. Um and so where something is unquantifiable, the court has held it's it can still constitute the basis for 93A. Um the defense often we see in, in cases like that is uh goes to, well, if if it's unquantifiable, it it may not be as legitimate as the plaintiff is saying. And that's where uh the the dispute is is adjudicated, um, and if the court finds that that the harm is real, um, notwithstanding the lack of quantifiability, uh, you're you're likely to see an award of uh, attorneys' fees because the the pre- prerequisites for ninety three a would be established.
0: All right. Yeah, that sounds like an area potentially for expert
2: opinion and discovery on the issue of unquantifiable or future damages. Absolutely. Um, All right, so um, as we mentioned at the outset, in
0: order to bring a claim under Section 11, the defendant's unfair competition or unfair or deceptive acts or practices must have occurred primarily and substantially in Massachusetts. Um, The Massachusetts SJC has expressly declined to create a list of determinative factors uh, because the inquiry is so fact-specific and instead has instructed judges to determine whether the center of gravity of the circumstances that give rise to the claim um, is in Massachusetts. But nonetheless, when employing the center of gravity tests, Massachusetts courts tend to focus on three specific factors anyways. And those are where the defendant committed the acts, where the plaintiff received and acted upon the acts, and the site of the plaintiff's losses due to the act, and and those seem um, like very straightforward factors. Um, but you know, in today's world of virtual communication and e-commerce, um, you know, determining the location of those factors can be tricky. So let's see
2: here.
0: The burden is actually on the defendant arguing against the applicability of Section 11 to show that their alleged misconduct occurred primarily and substantially outside of Massachusetts. And Massachusetts federal courts have followed a bright line rule that a cause of action under Section 11 will survive a motion to dismiss simply if the complaint alleges that the plaintiff is located in Massachusetts and claims an injury in Massachusetts And it does not appear that any
2: state courts have explicitly followed this uh, federal trend. Um, Sorry, I skipped ahead here. So again, turning to the issue of, um, you know, virtual commerce,
0: consider a situation where a foreign defendant, in the sense of being not a Massachusetts company, induced a foreign non-Massachusetts employee to violate his non-competition agreement with a Massachusetts-based company and you know go work for the foreign company. And the defendant and the employee then stole the plaintiff's trade secrets and published them for free on the internet. So the only things tying the dispute to Massachusetts here are the facts that the plaintiff is located in Massachusetts and the employee signed his employment agreement with the subject non-compete and non-disclosure provisions in Massachusetts. Did the misconduct occur primarily and substantially in Massachusetts such that section 11 applies? Um, That was the issue before the court in the Neural Magic case decided earlier this year and cited on your screen. So, as I mentioned before, we know that the claim was sufficient to survive a motion to dismiss because the plaintiff was located in Massachusetts and therefore could claim an injury in Massachusetts. However, at the summary judgment stage, the federal district court concluded that the plaintiff could not ultimately prevail on the Section 11 claim because the misconduct occurred entirely outside of Massachusetts. It was virtual, it was on the internet. And it was not specifically directed at the plaintiff or directed at Massachusetts. So therefore, the court concluded that the misconduct did not occur primarily and substantially in Massachusetts as required by Section 11. So essentially, um, the plaintiff's location and injury in Massachusetts can, is sufficient to survive a motion to dismiss, but it's not ultimately going to carry the day. And there has to be something more to prevail on
2: the Section 11 claim to satisfy that element.
3: John, I found it notable in that case that um, Meta. Did have a presence in Massachusetts, and the plaintiff pointed that out. But the court said that even that um, wasn't sufficient. I believe because the the specific conduct that that Meta or its employees engaged in was not by the Massachusetts uh, the, the the people located in Massachusetts. Is that right?
0: Right. So, you know, they did have a presence in Massachusetts, but it was unrelated to the conduct which formed the basis of the Chapter 93A claim. And, you know, if you go back to the text of the statute, it's the unfair or deceptive act or practice that has to occur substantially and primarily in Massachusetts. It's not sort of a uh, general personal jurisdiction question, uh, does the defendant, you know, have a presence in Massachusetts? It's a separate inquiry.
3: It seems to set the bar higher than a lot of plaintiffs um, might might have expected, um, especially where you have both a robust presence on the part of the defendant in the Commonwealth and uh, harm to the plaintiff in the Commonwealth.
0: Yeah, and I think that's intentional because otherwise the ambit of 93A would be boundless for any plaintiff that was located in the Commonwealth. Uh, And, you know, before we move on, we have another question about whether the recording of this presentation will be available afterwards. And I do believe that's the case. Um, I think the recording and the PowerPoint slides will be made available to you to refer to after but again, um, certainly not Ken or I that will be uploading those materials.
3: Yeah, we will. Uh, we, we will endeavor uh, to make that possible through uh, the BBA, but um, ultimately, they—that's uh, up to them.
2: Moving on. Uh,
3: so, so the the fifth and final um, point that we'd like to address today, based on recent case law. Um, Arises out of the question of whether 93A is something that um, sophisticated business parties can uh, get themselves out of if they so choose. Uh, you know, we're, we're at a point now where a lot of companies understand how 93A works, and they understand that 93A can impose um, very significant exposure for them uh, that. They they may wish to avoid, um, and so <clears throat> what we what we see probably on an increasing frequency is choice of law provisions uh, that select law other than Massachusetts um, for many reasons, but at least one of which may be uh, to avoid the um, potential for exposure to a ninety three a claim. Um, you know, certainly choice of law provisions uh, have existed long before. Uh, 93A became such a, uh, a popular choice in commercial litigation. Um, but for those who who are less familiar with them, um, in general, a choice of law provision is something that goes into a contract that says in so many words, uh, this agreement shall be governed by the laws of the state of blank. Um, and it it can be the case and often is the case that where at least one party is in Massachusetts, Um, That contract will nonetheless select, uh, will use the choice of law provision to say that it will be governed by uh, a state other than Massachusetts, maybe the state where the defendant is located, maybe uh, a a state where one or or either party was incorporated, um, or or some other state where uh, that has some connection to uh, the goods or services being um, discussed in the contract that is subject to the contract. Um, So the question is, uh, when you have a Massachusetts party and it's contracting um, in a choice of law provision that selects a state other than Massachusetts uh, to govern, um, does that nullify the party's right to assert a claim under 93A, Um, assuming the other predicates for a 93A claim would be met, where there has been Uh, unfair and deceptive conduct where there has been a loss and where uh, that unfair and deceptive conduct occurred primarily and substantially in Massachusetts. Uh, The First Circuit recently uh, grappled with that question in uh, the Kleiner versus Cengage Learning uh, case that was decided this year. Um, And just a little bit of background about that case. Uh, Kleiner was an author, He's based in Boston. Sengage Learning is a publisher of um, a- academic literature. Uh, he had a, a deal with them to publish a book. Um, and as with many book publishing deals, uh, a, royalties were a key component of his compensation. Uh, Kleiner was unhappy with the royalties he was receiving. He says that Sengage made um, false and misleading statements to him uh, when, when describing what uh, uh, or when stating what his royalty payments would look like. And so he brought a claim in the District of Massachusetts under uh, 93A uh, for, for unfair and deceptive conduct. Cengage uh, looked at the contract and they said, well, it says here. That we have a, a that New York law will govern specifically the language contained a clause that said, "quote This agreement shall be governed in accordance with the laws of the state of New York," uh, and that language is very important. This agreement shall be construed in accordance with um, because in looking at that specific language, uh, the court told the publisher, uh, "Well, you did not contract your way out of ninety three a liability." Um, because 93A is not part of this agreement. Uh, the courts held in so many words that because chapter 93A is an, is a statutory claim and not a contractual claim, simply dis, uh, the party's contractual choice to make the agreement construed uh, in accordance with the laws of New York uh, did not encompass 93A. Um, responded uh, to say, well, but here, 93A is really part of the contract court because the claim that uh, the plaintiff is bringing is that we've violated uh, the contract in a way that was unfair and deceptive. And notwithstanding that, the courts still said, no, even in cases where the 93A claim arises out of the party's Contractual interactions, their contractual dealings. 93 is nonetheless a statutory claim that is separate from the contract. And so simply saying in your choice of law provision that the agreement shall be governed by a state other than Massachusetts is not say is not an agreement by the parties that they are forfeiting non-contractual claims uh, that would arise under Massachusetts law. So does this mean that? parties can never contract their way out of 93a exposure it does not the court went on to say that party contract contracting parties could preclude 93a claims if they so choose but they have to do so with a more explicit and broadly written choice of law provision it while it's not sufficient for the parties to say this agreement shall be governed by the laws of New York it would be sufficient for them to say uh, something broader, like all rights of the parties, uh, you know, herein um, or arising in the context of this agreement, uh, shall be governed by insert state law here. That's not uh, Massachusetts, um, but simply saying where the where the language simply says the agreement is governed, that's not enough because Chapter ninety three is outside the contract. You have to make your choice of law provision much broader and much more explicit.
0: That's right. And I would also note that um, similarly, a choice of venue provision will not prohibit a plaintiff from bringing a Chapter 93A claim outside of Massachusetts. So just because uh, there's a venue provision calling for the matter to be litigated in another state, you know, certainly I've brought 93A claims that we've litigated in, for example, New Jersey. Um, and the court, you know, they will not deem that to be a choice of law provision and they will not deem that to um, prohibit a 93A claim.
2: Another caveat to note, let's see here, is that regardless of um, how a choice of law
0: provision is worded, so whether it's worded narrowly, um, as in the case that Ken just discussed, saying this agreement is governed by or whether it's worded more broadly asserting that, you know, any and all claims between the parties will be governed by a particular state's law. Um, A chapter 93a claim that's premised on fraud or misrepresentation surrounding the formation of the contract itself, so the typical claim we would think of would be a fraud in the inducement, is not considered to be duplicative of a contract claim and therefore it doesn't fall within the choice of law provision. So if the, you know, misrepresentation or fraud would nullify the contract itself, it necessarily would nullify the choice of law provision. And on your screen I've cited a handful of cases where the courts have ruled that a choice of law provision favoring the law of another jurisdiction did not bar Chapter 93A claims that were premised on fraud or misrepresentation underlying the formation of the contract itself. So typically, um, these are claims premised on misrepresentations by the parties in the negotiation of the contract.
3: So I think there the practice points are, if you're on the plaintiff side, is uh, if you're dealing with a choice of law provision that is broadly worded, and that selects a, a state other than Massachusetts. Um, if you want to preserve that ninety-three A claim, look for a way to characterize your claim your, uh, as as being one um, that that goes to the formation or inducement to contract. Uh, which I think Kleiner, for example, in in the case we were just discussing, could have argued he could have said uh, that even if the choice of law provision had been more broadly worded, that because he was relying on Cengage's statements about how his um, royalties would be calculated, that that goes to the formation of the contract. He would not have entered into the contract, but for his understanding that he would be entitled to certain royalties. Um Now, I. I who who can say whether that argument would have ultimately held water? Um, But as I said, a practice pointer from the plaintiff's perspective that um, that's going to be your your most uh, productive avenue of attack if you're facing one of these more broadly worded explicit choice of law provisions um, that would otherwise uh, write out the 93A claim.
0: Yeah, and that's a common theme we've seen today, Ken, that Need to be careful about how you articulate your claim and your complaint to make sure that it, you know, satisfies the primarily and substantially requirement that it, it describes the type of conduct that sets it apart from a typical ninety-three A claim, and that um, you know wouldn't run into one of these choice of law provisions. Uh,
3: we do have a, a question, um, which is. Did the court consider a choice of law principles in the uh, choice of law analysis in Cengage to bring Massachusetts law back into play? Did the court consider the choice of law principles? Um, I, don't, I don't believe that that was an issue in that case. Um, however, uh, more generally speaking, choice of law principles uh, would certainly be part of this analysis. Um, there are instances where notwithstanding um, a the contracting party's uh, choice of law provision, that the state law, uh, that Massachusetts or or if any other state may decide that um, they're not going to accept that. I mean, I, m- many of us have probably encountered a scenario where uh, we've challenged the validity of a choice of law provision as being contrary, uh, to the state in which we're asking the court to uh, in, enforce the contract, um, and there is uh, a separate analysis uh, that that goes out kind of beyond the purview of of this program. Um, but but suffice to say that there are circumstances where a court will not um, follow, will not uh, allow a choice of law provision to carry the day if it decides that that's contrary to the kind of funda- I think it's the fundamental principles of uh, the the state uh, in which that court is located. I I will say I've not seen um, a Massachusetts court applying that analysis in order to preserve a 93A claim. And I think to the contrary, the courts have acknowledged that if the parties uh, were explicit in their choice of law provision, that they didn't want Uh, Massachusetts law to apply that they didn't want 93A to apply, again, at least in the business to business context, uh, that the court would honor that. Um, I think the question may be very different in the Section 9 business to consumer context, um, because there, uh, I believe the argument would be much stronger that Massachusetts's fundamental policy of protecting consumers um, may be compromised if it were to allow Uh, a non-Massachusetts choice of law provision to carry the day there.
0: Right, and I think also in the consumer context, there's be an argument about the choice of law provision being part of a contract of adhesion uh, for the consumer. But I agree, Ken, I think the default rule is that Massachusetts courts will honor um, commercial
2: business parties' choice of law provisions as set forth in their contracts. All right. Oh. So to wrap up, our, our takeaways are that uh, a mere breach of
0: contract in and of itself does not necessarily give rise to a Chapter 93A claim. Uh, Chapter 93A does not apply to disputes arising from standard employee or employer relationships. But if the parties um, act in a commercial context, it can apply to disputes between an employer and employee. Um, The risk of future harm and other unquantifiable harm can constitute an adverse effect sufficient to permit the recovery of attorney's fees for a successful Section 11 claim. Um, under Section 11, misconduct must occur primarily and substantially in Massachusetts. And as we explained, um, to survive a motion to dismiss, it's sufficient to allege just that the plaintiff and the injury were in Massachusetts, but you need a little bit more to actually prevail on the claim. And five, contracting parties may disclaim Chapter 93A liability, but not for claims of fraud or misrepresentation. Um, underlying the
2: formation of the contract itself. We have any additional questions?
3: Well, thank you guys uh, for your attention today. Uh, We're going to um, do everything we can to make the uh, materials available, Um, but we uh, we appreciate your attendance and um and I think on behalf of uh, Sean and myself I want to thank the BBA and the Business and Commercial Litigation Steering Committee for uh for allowing us to be here today.
1: That's right. Thanks Ken, thanks Alexis. Yes, thank you to both of you for this great discussion of everything. Um and I think the BBA has already said that the materials will be available. Um I'm not sure where uh but And it may be that they get emailed. Uh, So hopefully that has happened. Um, And we're giving back seven minutes of people's time. So (laughs) thank, thank you, thank you both for doing this.
2: Thanks a lot.